Well, I invite you this morning to turn to the book of Isaiah, and we will be in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, beginning in verse 1. You'll find that on page 573 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we certainly invite you to take uh, that Bible in the Pew Rack as our gift to you. So Isaiah chapter 9, as you're finding your way there, I, I have been made aware, I think that this coming week is finals week for the Patrick Henry students. Is that correct? Yes. And, and um, so that's why I don't see the look of joy on your face this morning, perhaps, uh, as you may be a bit preoccupied. But uh, we certainly pray that this will be a profitable week for you. And we wish you Godspeed as you return home and look forward to seeing you again in the coming new year. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, here now the Word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian." For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for his fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our Father, we're thankful now for your word in which we can come and sit under And this passage in particular provides such hope, such such joy and delight. And so I ask you, in light of the truths in which we will consider this morning, that you will bring joy to those in despair. And that you will shine your light to those who are in darkness. And you will bring peace to those who are in turmoil through the promises of our Savior, the Christ. We love Him, and we delight to consider Him this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1865, a 36-year-old Englishman by the name of William Booth began a ministry which would become years later known as the Salvation Army. Booth intended through his ministry to meet the needs of England's most destitute, the, the drunkards and the prostitutes and the homeless, to meet both their physical needs and their spiritual needs. And as he did, as he went about the slums throughout England, many people's needs were met and many people surrendered their life to Christ as their Savior. And Booth's ministry began to grow and many began to join his army as the success and the fruitfulness began to mount. But it was also met with a great deal of hostility and enemies. As he sent out those who are part of his army into the streets of England, they came back with stories of being pelted with hot coals and sprayed with tar. Some were beaten, others were stoned, some were kicked to death in the streets of England. The Salvation Army, in response to this hostility, came up with a strategy. What should we do in response to those who hate us, those who harm us? Their strategy was to respond to all hostility with a smile, a God bless you, and an offer of prayer. 
William Booth was not spared of these tactics against him. Night after night, he would come home bleeding and bruised after being attacked while preaching in the slums of England. And yet, despite all the hostility in which he faced over his time in ministry, he would travel in 1865 and onwards over 5 million miles and preach over 60,000 sermons. This ministry in which he embraced, of course, was modeled after one who came before him, and none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus went to the, to the destitute and the broken and the, the beat down and the downtrodden. And, and by the way, he didn't just drive in for the day and then retreat back to his castle at night. He lived among them. He ministered to them. And Booth wanted to model this ministry that he would go and be with them, just as Jesus was. In fact, we know that Jesus was to be like this even prior to his birth, we're told, as the angel announces to Mary, his mother, prior to her conception of Jesus, that you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not God from afar, not God way up high, but God who comes and lives with us. The angel came and foretold this, but he was not the first to come up with this idea. It was announced through the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, and we shall call his name Emmanuel. And today we begin a, a series of Advent messages, all from the book of Isaiah. Um, we're going to consider the promises that God has given us seven centuries before Jesus ever walked upon this earth. The promises that a king was coming, that God would send his Messiah. In fact, the book of Isaiah is so clear and so full of messianic prophecies, it has throughout the history of the church been referred to as the fifth gospel. In fact, it so clearly predicts the life and the death and even the resurrection of Jesus Christ that for, for hundreds of years, the skeptics to Christianity rejected the book of Isaiah as being written prior to Christ's life. They said this could not have been written before he was born. It must have been written after he came and lived until in 1949, we found a complete copy of the book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scroll area which was dated to two centuries prior to Jesus' birth and life. It's a glorious book. It has ministered to me so richly just in my preparation, and I hope it will to you as well as we consider today that God would give us a son, that a child would be born who would be the eternal king. In fact, you notice uh, God, God will do this because he's zealous to do this. Look at the end of this text all the way in, at the end of verse 7, this wonderful sentence that has meant so much to me this week. The Bible says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I want you to understand this morning as we begin to consider this passage that God is zealous. We might say that God is a zealot. Isaiah chapter 42 says God is compared to a warrior psyching him up, himself up for battle saying he stirs up his zeal. Zephaniah 1 and, and as well Zephaniah chapter 3 refers to the fire of God's zeal. Psalm 79, we're called to wonder at, the, at his zeal burning like fire. Deuteronomy says that God is a zealous God. And I bring this up because I think in the Christmas season we're, we're tempted to think of a, a meek little baby. And we wouldn't be wrong, of course. It's what is Christmas is in many ways about. But we need to understand something, that the baby grew up. And added to his meekness, he, he added bravery and boldness, a zealousness. In fact, it was when Jesus was driving the wicked from the temple with a shout and a whip. John, watching it all, is reminded of Psalm 69 saying, Zeal for your house will consume me. God is zealous to redeem you. God is zealous to give grace. God is zealous to pour out mercy. The Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I, I wonder, what are you zealous for? What are you zealous for? Perhaps you're, you're zealous for justice, maybe even in light of the events of this week. Maybe you're zealous for your reputation. Maybe you're zealous 
for your ease, your comfort, sports team. You know what God is zealous for? He's zealous to give grace. I wonder, are you zealous to be gracious? Oh God, let me be gracious. Let me give mercy. This is who God is. His driving passion is the ultimate triumph of His grace. And I want you to understand, even before we lay eyes and work through this passage, that that you can count on His grace. Friends, you can count on His redemption. You can count on His plan. His zeal will do it. The book of Isaiah is written in an incredibly dark period in the life of Israel. Perhaps the most dark of all their times. Israel spiritually was thoroughly pagan. Morally, they were ruthlessly cruel. Nationally, they were amazingly weak. There's an army about to come and conquer them and carry off, literally carry off tens of thousands of people from their tribal land off to be slaves in a foreign country and they would never ever return. And Isaiah says in the middle of it all, God can be trusted. You can build your life on God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. I mention this because I wonder if there are some of you that come into this room and you, are, you feel the heaviness of trouble in your life. Or you have the confusion of the, your future or the chaos in relationships or the darkness of sin or the crumbling of dreams surrounds you. And I want you so much to hear God's word this morning that the word of the Lord today is that God is zealous for your good. He's zealous to bring grace into your life. He's zealous to walk you through your troubles and your hardships and you can count on it. You take it to the bank. He will be good to you. He will guide you and lead you. He says, this is my word. In fact, I'm going to give you my son. As we consider first this morning, the son brings light into darkness. Notice the first word in chapter 9, but. In other words, chapter 9 is beginning in a transition between chapter 8 which just explains the incredible darkness that is surrounding Israel. And chapter 9, how God is going to bring light into that darkness. So I think it will be helpful this morning just to briefly consider the context of chapter 9. What's going on as we look in chapter 8. We see Israel as a nation has failed to trust in God. They're turning to foreign pagan empires for their help. They're really trusting in anything and everything but God. In fact, they get so bad that they begin to trust even in the dead. Look in chapter 8 and verse 19. He says, And when they say to you, inquire of mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? You see, they begin to trust in God. Verse 20 tells us they rejected God's testimony. They rejected his scripture. And verse 21 explains the consequence of this. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. Right? This incredible hardship is about to come upon them. There, there's going to be uh, hunger and, and uh, being distressed. And as a result, what, you know what they're going to do? They're not going to repent. They're actually going to curse God for their troubles. Read on in verse uh, 21. It says, and they will, they, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And so they're going to curse God in the midst of it. And no wonder we read verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a time of great darkness for the nation of Israel. In fact, in Isaiah chapter Uh, 9 verse 1, he refers specifically to the land of Naphtali and Zebulon. You see that there? These are the northernmost areas in the nation of Israel, Zebulon and Naphtali. And the reason why he's referring to them is when armies would come in from the north, the place where they would enter would be these two tribal regions. 
And, and these regions have been accustomed to these warring empires coming in. And quite often when they would leave, they would drag thousands of them off as slaves. So Second Kings chapter 15 says the king of Assyria came and captured all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. This is why Isaiah 1 refers to this northern region of Israel as Galilee of the nations. Or sometimes called Galilee of the Gentiles. It's because when these warring armies would take people out, especially Syria, they would then send immigrants back into those tribal regions. And those people would mix their religion with the Jewish people who remained. And you have this kind of great moral and spiritual darkness in Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. And it's in this context that Isaiah says the dawn is coming. The light is about to shine. Look in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Right? The gloom will be set away. In the former times he brought contempt, uh, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And again, note verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. Right? So they're in this deep darkness. God says, the light has come. The light has, is now shining upon you. In fact, Isaiah is so sure this will happen. You notice in verse 1, he says, in the former times you were in darkness. Right? But the, he speaks of the present darkness as the former darkness. Right? Because he's so confident that God is going to bring this about. These individuals who are right now in trouble and will be in trouble for some time, it doesn't end immediately. He's saying, you can hope because light is coming into our darkness. Now the question is, okay, well, what is this light he talks about? What's he referring to? Well, keep your finger here in Isaiah 9 and turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. Now Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 4... I'm going to find that. You'll find that on page 809 in the Pew Bible if, you do, if you're using that. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew explains to us, what is this light he's talking about here in Isaiah? Look in verse 12. Now when he, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun. And Naphtali, verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death on, on, in the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. From this time forth, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, Christ is the light. Christ is the light that has pierced this darkness that God has sent into these regions. And how like it, how like God it is to send Jesus to the place that knows despair the best. How like God it is to send Jesus to the place that knows depravity and delusion and deep darkness. To not start in Jerusalem, but to send his light into Galilee of the Gentiles. This is what Christ has come to do. He has come to defeat our darkness. He has come to send away gloom. He said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And please understand that the darkness we see in the book of Isaiah that we consider about these people is just a picture of the darkness that, that all peoples live under if they do not know Christ as their king. When the Messiah is not known, darkness reigns. We too once lived in darkness. I certainly did. I've seen the light. Have you seen the light, Christian? Has he shined upon you? Have you been drawn to the light of Christ? This is what he has come to do. He, he brings light to places of darkness. This, this land, Zebulun and Naphtali, they added these idols to their lukewarm devotion to God. And it just brought darkness and delusion and despair upon them. And this place, I think, is very much like many churches throughout this world. And many families, even, who pay their Sunday morning homage to God and then chase idols throughout the rest of the week. 
And it is a sad way to live. It is a dark place to live. And perhaps your home is, is, is a place like that. Oh yeah, you're, you're here today, but throughout this week you, you'll be running after this idol or that idol. And please understand, Christ wants to bring light into your home. He could transform these places of despair and delusion. His light can transform it. It begins ultimately with dad, I think. Dad beginning to follow after Christ. Dad beginning to bring the light of Christ into his home. And if not dad, then mom. Allowing God to work in truth and love and transform places of darkness. This is what Isaiah is telling us. He also brings light to people in darkness. I don't, I don't know if you realize, when he calls it Galilee of the Gentiles, that's not a compliment. This is not a place that is well thought of. And Jesus, of course, is from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. And they said in his time, can anything good come from Nazareth? Or in John chapter 7, when people begin to think that Jesus might be a prophet sent by God, the Pharisees say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Or in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles begin to preach, the, those who oppose them respond saying, they can't be from God for these men are Galileans. This is a rejected place, a place held in disdain. I don't know if you ever felt that rejection. I don't know if perhaps you've ever felt people's disdain upon you, judgment on you. And maybe rightly so. Maybe your life is filled with dirt and filth. And, and you feel that, that disdain and you look at yourself and say, how can I ever fix this? How can I ever get beyond this? Please understand, you can't. You can't. You're just going to, you may resolve here or pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps there, but you're going to fail every time. And Christ has come and he says, let me transform you. You notice this light begins to shine and they make no contribution to it. They didn't even ask for it to come. These who are walking in darkness are suddenly blinking under the light of God. May his light shine into your life even now. Jesus would say in John chapter 12, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. You want to know how to get past the darkness. It's simply by bowing your knee to King Jesus, trusting him, yielding your life to him, surrendering to him. This is how we enter into the light. Christians, you've, you've entered into that light. You know what it's like to have Christ shine truth and glory and reorient your life and bring his light into your life. Please understand that though you enjoy the light, you and I are surrounded by people who live in darkness. There is a world that is enshrouded in darkness, shrouded in the shadow of death. The Bible tells us in Acts 13 that God has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what we're to do. We who have the light are, bring, are to bring it to the ends of the earth. One way that we do that is we support offerings like this that we might fund those who will go to faraway places and bring that light of Christ to those very dark places. Another way that we do it is we interact with people this Christmas season, people who are, who, where Christ is, is everywhere now. We celebrate his birth and, and their doors are opening for us to speak about Jesus. Doors are opening for us to invite people to church, to our cantata service next Sunday evening or our Christmas Eve service and so forth that we might bring light into places of darkness as Christ has come to do. You see, the sun brings light to darkness, but he also brings joy to despair. The sun brings joy to despair. I mentioned that Israel is in a hopeless situation. There's an Assyrian invasion on the horizon. If you will, just look back in chapter 8 once again, and you could see their, their despair in verse 4. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And again, look in verse 7. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. You see what this flood is coming. An army is coming. It's going to reach to the neck. There is a nation in incredible despair, and God says in the midst of that situation, I'm going to bring joy. 
I'm bringing joy to you. You see that verse 3? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. We wonder, well, how are you going to do that? You look in verse 4. At the end of verse 4, he says, you have broken. He's talking about the oppressors as on the day of Midian. So however he's going to do it, it's going to be like what he did uh, when he broke the oppression when Midian was oppressing the people of Israel. It's a wonderful story found in Judges 6 through 8. It'll be great reading for you this week. That Midian, as we see in the Bible, dominated Israel for seven years to the point where they had to flee from their homes and live in caves. They could not work their fertile fields, but instead resided in the mountain clefts. And it's at this time, as they cry out to God for help, God sends an angel. And he, he goes to a man, a very unlikely hero of the smallest family, of the weakest clan, and we find this man in a wine press trying to thresh wheat down in a ditch as he hides from the Midianite oppressors. His name is Gideon. And God convinces Gideon to lead his army against the Midianites. And, and, and God provides for him. He gathers 32,000 soldiers to line up under Gideon. And Gideon is about to go to battle. And then God tells him to do what no general has ever done before or has ever done since. He sends his entire army home. And after God brought it to him, he says, now go home. All 32,000 people except 300 men. And Gideon goes on and he arms them, not with swords and shields and bows, but he arms them with, with trumpets and pottery and torches. And they gather around at night as God had foretold. And in the darkness of that night, they blow their trumpets and they break their pots and they held high their lanterns and the enemy by the sovereignty of God is thrown in such confusion that they turn and attack one another and kill their fellow soldiers. You see, God gave this incredible victory through this incredibly unlikely hero to save his people. And what Isaiah is telling us, when reminding us of the time of Midian, he's saying there is another liberator coming, and he is even more unlikely. It is an even more unlikely hero who battles with an even more peculiar strategy to free us from an even more cruel enemy. In fact, instead of a general, he sends a baby. And instead of a massive army, all he does is he assemble a small band of somewhat bumbling followers. And, and the, the only bloodshed that soaks the battlefield is his own on a solitary cross. And a victory is won through that selfless sacrifice. And it is through that victory that Isaiah says, the people who are once in despair can rejoice with a great joy. Look at the joy in which he explains. I mean, there's no meager, weak joy. Verse 3, the people rejoice. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He says they, their joy is like harvest time when they bring in the yield that will sustain the family and, and feed others and save lives. Their joy is like the joy when soldiers divide the spoils of victory. Which, which means the enemy's defeated and the nation's been saved and abundance is laid at your feet. It, their joy, if we put it in, in today's terms, is like, is like you've been handed a death sentence with cancer. And the doctor comes in and says, I can't believe the scan, but the cancer's gone. Right? It's that kind of joy. It's kind of the joy if you're hanging over the, the, the abyss of eternal doom hanging by your fingertips and along comes a savior and grabs your hand and pulls you into life forevermore. It's that kind of joy that this hero is going to bring. My question for you is, are you rejoicing? Is there joy in your heart? What are you, what are you waiting for? What more do you want for him to do? He's come to save you. And a great cost to himself. You want to celebrate Christmas rightly? Then celebrate Christ. I mean intentionally celebrate Jesus. Set aside time for Jesus celebrating time. Right? Not Jesus asking for this time. We are to ask him. Just want to celebrate 
I just want to find the joy. I want joy to have power in my life. The people rejoice. The oppressed are liberated. Read on in verse 4. I mean, it just gets better. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. He has broken their oppressor's power, the yoke, the staff, the rod of their enemies, his people under this heavy burden, their, their bondage. Their bondage that they experience from this army of Assyria is just a picture. It's just a foreshadow of the bondage that you and I experience when we give ourselves to sin. Jesus said in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In Galatians 4, the Bible tells us that, that we are all under bondage under the law. And what that means is that we, we, we think, well, maybe I, I need to clean myself up before I could come to God. Maybe I need to fix what's going in my life. And I, I want to come to Jesus, but I have to get rid of these things first. I have to take care of these things first. I tell you, friends, that is a burden that you're not meant to bear. It's the bondage of the law. God says, you don't need to fix your life. I will fix your life. You can't fix your life. Just come to me. Let me lift that burden from you. I'm here to redeem you from your bondage, from your slavery. This is what our liberator does. He, he comes to not only defeat the forces of evil, but he'll actually end conflict itself. Is that not the meaning of verse 5? For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Right? In other words, all the war-torn boots and the blood-stained garments of our enemy are, are, are burned in the bonfire of the grace of God. Right? We won't need battle armaments anymore. We won't have enemies anymore. And so what, what we'll do, all we'll do is we don't win the victory. We just walk out onto the battlefield and we see that, that the war is over and we celebrate that peace has come. And we say, we don't need these. So we might as well just burn them up as fuel, Isaiah says. That's not what the angels foretold. Glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he is pleased. In fact, you... You read on and you see not only is the war over, but the nation is multiplied. Look back up in verse 3. He says, you have multiplied the nation. And, and we were just tempted to read right over that unless we know the context. Because how, how can you multiply the nation when the nation is about to be destroyed by Assyria? I mean, if you put yourself in the position of hearing this in the context of Isaiah, it doesn't make any sense. How can he multiply the nation? Well, he will do so by taking those who worship false gods and foreigners. He'll take those like the men who live in Naphtali and Zebulun who have sold their souls to idols and he will draw them to himself, draw them into his nation. Zechariah chapter 2 says, Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Zechariah 8 says, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Right? In other words, outsiders, those far away, those who've given their hearts to the world, God will reach in grace and he will draw them into his family, right? And, and we, they will reach out and grab hold of the, the garment of the gospel that it might be take, take them to God. I mean, this is us, by the way. You understand this. When he says he'll multiply the nations, you're the nations, right? We, we, we are the fulfillment in some sense of Isaiah 9-3. We have been brought in. We have grabbed the garment of the gospel and says, take us with you. Take us with God. Right? This prophecy is in many ways about you and I as well as the rest of the nations. And we have this great privilege to extend this garment of the gospel and say to the nations, grab hold. Say it to our neighbors and to our friends and to our family, grab hold and let me take you to God. He has multiplied the nations. He's brought joy. Merry Christmas, Hamilton Baptist Church. Merry Christmas. I bring good news of great joy. Our liberator has come and joy is piercing the despair. The enemy is defeated. The burdens are lifting. Peace is coming. You've been welcomed into an ever-growing family. Are you joyful? Does that joy have strength in your life? Because there's going to be trouble in your life. It's not already there. And that trouble comes and hits you. Will that joy give you strength? Not going to let it buffet me away from my God. I know what he has done. I know who he is. And I am his. 
In fact, who is this liberator that brings us joy? We're told in verse 6, as we consider lastly, the Son brings peace into turmoil. He brings peace. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. Now, now we, we, we just heard this, right, when they lit the Advent candle. And you'll, you'll be on Christmas cards, and it's on the front of your bulletin, I think. How are you going to hear it like a hundred times this Christmas season? Isaiah 9, 6. And so it's become so casual to us. Oh, yeah, of course. But you, just for a moment, try to place yourself into Isaiah's context. He says, listen, light's coming to darkness, and joy's coming to despair, and God's going to do this. And you know how he's going to do this? He's going to give you a baby. He's going to send his son to you. Now, how incredibly odd that is. The liberator is this child, right? We, we have, he's going to bring peace and defeat our enemies, and a child will do this. In fact, everything hinges on that. You notice the first word in verse 6, for. We might translate that because, right? All this is going to happen because a child is born to us. A son is given to us. He alone will bring light and darkness, joy and despair, peace and turmoil. This child. But Isaiah doesn't stop there, does he? He tells us who this child is. He tells us this child is called the Wonderful Counselor. He, he, he has wisdom beyond your imagination. Um, he, he knows exactly what to do and when to do it and how to do it. We see the wisdom of Christ throughout his life, especially on the last day of his life. Remember that? In the last day, all his opponents come for one last time. First, the Herodians. Second, the Sadducees. Third, the Pharisees all come to trip him up. And he answers every single one in turn. And the Bible tells us no man after that presumed to ask him any more questions. We'll just be quiet now. Right? He's the wonderful counselor. He has amazing counsel to give you. He's wonderful. Just stop there. When's the last time you just wondered at him? He is wonderful. And his counsel for you is wonderful. So much better than your wisdom. What you think is best for you. If God says, no, that's not best. This is best. Trust him. He is far wiser than you. His wisdom is unparalleled, but he's just not some counselor or friend that comes along. He is, secondly, the mighty God. He is El Gabor. Gabor means hero or champion. The Gabor is the one who comes to save the village that, that faces these overwhelming odds. He's a champion for us, and we need a champion because our enemies are great. John Calvin once wrote in, in commenting on this passage, with good reason does he call him mighty because our contest is with the devil, death, and sin. Enemies too powerful by whom we would be immediately vanquished. Thus we learn from this title that there is in Christ abundance of protection for defending our salvation. For he is God who is pleased to show himself strong on our behalf. He's mighty, mighty for you. But he's not just mighty, he's the mighty God. El Gabor. El means God, the mighty God. Now what's interesting is you read the book of Isaiah, there's this theme over and over and over again. In light of their idolatry, God says time and again, I am, o I am the only God. He says, that's not a God, and I looked at that guy, and that's not a God, and this idol's not a God, and this idol won't even talk to you, won't even do anything for you. He says, you know, I have searched heaven and earth, and I have found no other God. I alone am God. I mean, you see it all throughout Isaiah, and then you get to this passage, and what does he say? This child I'm sending you, he's God. Right? He is the, the mighty God. What, what an incredible promise. We even see here, I believe, the, the picture of the triune nature of God, that there is one God, and yet that God is manifest, as we know, into three persons, and the child will be called God. He's not just some judge or hero or king or prophet or priest. He is God himself. It reminds us of, of chapter 7 and verse 4, of, of, as 14, as I mentioned earlier, a virgin shall be with child, and you will call him Emmanuel, right? His meaning God with us. He's the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father or the Father of eternity. He's eternal. 
He's always been. Micah 5.2, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. He has lasted forever. He is everlasting. And he is the everlasting father. Which is not to say he's going to take the place of the father in the Godhead. It, it just simply means that he is father-like to us. He is compassionate to us. He cares for us. He protects us. He guides us. He even disciplines us when we need to be disciplined. And lastly, Isaiah says he is the prince of peace. He's come that you and I might have peace, that you might have the peace of God. Jesus himself would say, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. I'm giving you my peace. My brothers and sisters, I hope you know the peace of God. It is your inheritance. Christ has given it to you. And yet so many times we're just buffeted by anxiety worry and, and, and concern and we're unsettled and we're miserable. And this is why Paul, I think, says, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's come. This ruler has come to give us the peace of God, but he's given us a far better peace than even that. Because he's not only given us the peace of God, he has given us peace with God. That's what we need most of all. Because you and I, in our sin, were once God's enemies. The Bible says we were by nature children of wrath. We were at war with God. And Christ has come to end that war. As Romans tells us, we have been justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this peace that it seems like Isaiah wants to focus on as he continues on in verse 7. And he explains that this peace is this eternal peace, this, this ever-increasing peace. Um, notice how he begins this verse in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, right? It seems to me like every good ruler desires to be righteous and just and to bring peace into his land, right? Every good government wants to promise that. And, and, and yet you read, read the, the history of the nations and it seems like they all fail. Whether it's Egypt or Syria or Babylon and then Persia, whether it's Greece or Rome, they are all places of oppression, all places of injustice. And then eventually Rome was destroyed as the great barbarian hordes ushered in the Dark Ages, and it certainly was no better at that time. And and then what replaced the barbarian hordes was the reign of the church, the Holy Roman Emperor. And it was still a time of oppression and injustice, and there was not time of peace. But, of course, we've been enlightened, haven't we? we found democracy. Government of the people and by the people and for the people. And every four years, right, we are told that if we elect this person, our problems will be solved, right? I, I don't know. How are you enjoying election season, right? I, we, right? The two-year-long election. And we're told, listen, this person will solve the problem. And then him or her alone, right? I'm still waiting. In fact, I think Winston Churchill put it best in 1947, when he said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other forms of government we have tried. I tell you, this son who's coming will be the king we've waited for. He alone will be qualified to rule this world. He will bring full economic, cultural, relational, spiritual flourishing. He will banish injustice, violence, and war. He will send away even disease, suffering, and death itself. I love how the psalmist puts it. In his days shall righteousness flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endures. He shall have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. It's none other than Jesus Christ the King. 
He is coming. This Prince of Peace, the crucified, risen, reigning, returning Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He will come to make all things new, all things right. And when he does, there will be no end to his kingdom. The Bible tells us he will do it from this time forth and forevermore, right? It will not end. But what I find particularly interesting in verse 7 is that he does not say of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Well, that's true. That's not what he says. Excuse me, that is what he says. He does not say, of his government and peace there will be no end. Notice that word, increase. You see that? Of the increase of his government and of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. In other words, this empire of grace and peace will forever expand. And it's expanding right now. There's an external growth to it right now. Right from the, from the time of his birth, it continues right now as the nations come in and the kingdoms grow and the, the church abounds. There's also an internal increase of his kingdom. The more you and I learn to love God and to love one another and to give grace and mercy, his kingdom's growing in our own heart. His rule is growing. His peace is flourishing in our own heart. There's, there's an external increase of his kingdom and there's an internal increase of his kingdom. But Isaiah tells us, there's an eternal increase of his kingdom, an eternal increase of his peace. How can that be when he returns? There'll be no more evangelism, no more people to be brought in. Moreover, there'll be no more sanctification. You and I will become fully righteous. We'll become like him when we see him as he is. So how can the government and the peace continues to grow? I I think what Isaiah is, is saying, though, I'm not sure. I think he's saying you and I will never get to a point where we think, okay, I've seen it all. Okay, I've reached the limit. Okay, you have nothing more to show me. Okay, there is no more depth to your grace. There's no more depth to your mystery for me to understand and comprehend. I think every moment will be better than the last forever. The increase of his government, the increase of his peace will not end. You know how God will do this? Because he's a zealot, right? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And friends, If he then is this wonderful counselor, I tell you his best ideas and strategies, let's follow him. And as the mighty God, he defeats our enemies with great ease, let's hide behind him. And as the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly, let's enjoy him. And as the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we are still enemies, let's welcome his dominion into our life. A son has been given to you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Do you you follow him? Do you hide in him? Do you delight in him? Do you welcome his reign of peace in your life? That's what he offers you. What more could you want? He will give it to you. A son has been given to bring peace into turmoil. And as we think about, about what God has done through Christ, and even as we prepare for this Lord's Supper, and we think about how we can intentionally celebrate the birth of Christ during this Advent season. I just want to leave us briefly with three kind of exhortations, three applications that we could maybe intentionally for the next 20 days, the remainder of our period of Advent, really intentionally go after Christ. And I want to encourage you, I already have to celebrate. This would be a time of celebration. We should celebrate the promise of his coming. You're going to leave here in a moment. And you you know, Christian, you're going to leave as a forgiven child of God. No matter what else happens in your life, that's what you're leaving us. And when you come back, perhaps tonight, and hear the children sing about Christ, you're going to return here as a forgiven child of God. And every single one of us is going to go to bed tonight as a forgiven child of God. I don't know what else is going on in your life. But you are forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's worth celebrating. And so focus these next next 20 days. Let there be times of celebration in your life. We're going to do that as we take the Lord's Supper. Will this be a celebration for what Christ has done for you out of his great love for you? Secondly, anticipation. I, I I don't know if you realize, but Isaiah 9, these promises are not yet, have not yet come in fulfillment. I don't know when the last time you turned on the nightly news and all you heard was stories of peace, righteousness, and justice. Right? I'm, I'm just looking for one story about that. Right? This, this Much of this, we have a foretaste, but much of it is coming. And I, I hope even consider it just kind of whets your appetite that he might come soon, even now. 
that he might come. In fact, when we take this Lord's Supper, just in a moment, we're not only celebrating, but we're anticipating. You know, Jesus said, I will not drink of this cup again with you until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, one day, Christ is going to return, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, but we're going to take it with Jesus. Right? He's going to pass out the cup and the bread. And we're all going to celebrate His death when He comes. Will you anticipate His coming? In fact, Jesus gave us instructions on how to live while He waits. He says, while you wait for my return, you should stay alert. You should pray continually. You should be found faithful. I want to find you faithful when I come back. Maybe this Advent season is an opportunity for you to commit yourself anew to the commands of Christ, to following Him. I want to be found faithful, Jesus Help me to turn from these sins in my life as I anticipate your coming. Thirdly, proclamation. As we celebrate what's happened and anticipate what will, let's proclaim it to others. Friends, families, let's talk about Jesus. And, and share the gospel, certainly. But at the very least, we just talk about Christ. Let Him be on your lips. Talk about what He's done in your life. Talk about what, what, why you love Him, why you want to follow Him, and share how others can follow Him as well. In fact, when we take the Lord's Supper, you know what we're doing? We're proclaiming the Lord's death. Is that not what the Bible tells us? When we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And we're going to proclaim it to one another as we celebrate His work and anticipate His return. In fact, I'm going to invite you even now, as, as the Bible instructs, to take a moment of silent prayer as you prepare your hearts, and there might be sin in your life that you want to return over to Christ as we celebrate the grace that covers all of our sin. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are so thankful for Jesus. And no matter what else life brings, whether it's periods of ease and prosperity or just broken despair, we as your people tell you even now we are thankful for Jesus for we know we don't know perhaps what life would be like without and we cannot imagine so will you help us especially those who are troubled this morning to see the light in the midst of their darkness to find the joy in the midst of their turmoil to experience peace in the midst of their trouble we do that even now as they hope fully in Christ. We pray for our friend here this morning that perhaps does not know you. We ask, even in light of what we have considered this morning, that you would draw them to you, that they would see you perhaps for the first time for who you truly are and realize that running their own life is foolish and painful and just filled with sadness and that they would find Christ to be the one that they have been looking for. And now as we gather around this table, we ask that Christ will come. I, I believe He is here through His Spirit. Jesus, will you join us at this table? Will you minister in our hearts as we seek to celebrate what you've done and anticipate what you will do and proclaim it to one another? Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.